If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John 13 tonight. If you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to open up your phone, use the Bible app, um, and we can follow along in John 13 together. But I'm going to start with a question. How many enjoy National Geographic? A couple Nat Geo fans out there. I mean, they've had some great shows over the years. One of the best has to be Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. Any Dirty Jobs fans? Now, if I was to recount all hundred or hundreds of the dirty jobs that Mike Rowe has done, well, not all of them would be prudent to talk about from stage in the cafe room, but let me highlight a couple. How about this? A snake investigator. Now, for some reason, uh, some individuals need to uh, learn more about the snakes in the Great Lakes. So they capture snakes from out of Lake Erie, and they want to analyze what they eat. So what Micro does every time he does one of these jobs is he doesn't just like go into the animal rendering facility and, and interview people, right? He actually gets his hands dirty, puts on the rubber gloves and does the dirty work. That's what makes it a great show. Well, when he was a snake investigator, uh, they would have to squeeze the snake so hard until they barfed and then analyze what they ate. Well, the day that he did it, I think he got eaten or well, it was really bit by a snake 36 or more times. I hate snakes. That's probably going to come back to bite me, pun intended. Don't, no snakes, please. Thank you. How about a sewage inspector in the city of San Francisco? Now, the great city of San Francisco has a pretty elaborate sewer system, and they've got to be prepared for an earthquake. So they've got to make sure that everything is prepared, everything's repaired. Uh, so to do that, they're, they're walking through the, the sewers below the city and they're actually physically repairing cracks with mortar. Can you imagine spending your day walking through human waste? Not to mention the critters that you might find down there. I mean, if that was my job, Hannah would make sure that I shower off at Fritz's house before ever walking into our house. Now, if Mike Rowe lived 2000 years ago, if he had the Dirty Jobs show, certainly being a human foot washer would make the list. Now, I think it should make the list today. I mean, I think the idea of doing pedicures as a living sounds disgusting. I mean, who wants to touch somebody's feet all day long? I certainly don't. But it was even worse back in Jesus' day. Because when Jesus was walking the earth, the only transportation that you had was your animal or your feet. And they shared the same road. And Jesus and his disciples, it wasn't like they were wearing closed-toed boots or rubber boots, right? They were wearing a glorified flip-flop, probably. So when you're walking down the road, your feet are sweaty and dusty, and then they're also filled with animal excrement. I can only imagine how wonderful that smelled. And it was always somebody's job to do the foot washing. Now, we probably never experienced this firsthand, but I did have an experience that maybe helped me understand just a little bit how gross walking in Jesus' day could be. I remember when I was 11, my family took a family vacation to Mackinac Island. A great place. I, haven't, I don't think I've been there since. But that's not because I don't like it. It's just I haven't been there since. And the day that we took the ferry over to the island, uh, it was pouring. Now, if you've been there, you know that there's no motorized transportation on all of Mackinac Island. So you can either ride a horse, and there are horses literally everywhere, or you can take a bike. But the day that we went, it was pouring buckets. So we went to this museum to try to avoid the rain for the morning. And then once we got into the afternoon, then the sun sort of started to come out. And we decided to do what every tourist who ever visits Mackinac Island does, rent bikes and ride the eight-mile loop around the island. 
Well, it might have stopped raining, but the rain had taken the horse manure and it was running through the streets. So I don't know if you've ever ridden a bike when it's wet, but what happens when the tire spins? <laughs> I wish we would have taken a picture of this. Our whole family had poop all up our spine. It was gross. Oh, it was gross. That's what I think of when I think of Jesus and his disciples walking through uh, Galilee, walking through Israel. It was gross. But imagine coming into dinner, you're dirty, you're gross, your feet stink. I mean, somebody's got to wash your feet. They didn't have showers back then, so, you know, nope, they didn't. No showers. They just had the river to go take a bath in. (laughs) <laughs> or, or go to the river, that would work too, but they didn't do that. There was a servant usually that was at the house that would do the, the washing of people's feet. Um, but the Midrash, which was actually the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, said that a Hebrew servant could not be forced to wash feet. That was actually a non-Jewish person that was the one that was to wash the feet. But that's kind of the backdrop of where we are in John 13. It's the night before Jesus dies. And he gathers his disciples and they're in the upper room and they're celebrating the Passover and they walk in the room. And I imagine this is how it worked that they, they look down on the ground and there's the basin. Maybe there's the towel next to the basin where they'd wash their feet. But there wasn't water in it yet. And they're looking around thinking, huh, where's the servant that's gonna wash, wash our feet? I don't see him. So then Peter thinks, ah, I did this yesterday. Not my job. And then Matthew thinks, ah, oh, I'm, have three times the education that these guys have. It's certainly John's job. And John thinks, oh, Jesus calls me the disciple that he loved, so it's gotta be James' job. And they rationalize away the need to wash Jesus' feet or even wash their own feet. Well, that's, they enjoy a meal together and they're just reclining at the table with stinky feet, not talking about the elephant in the room. John 13, verse one. Follow along with me as I read. Now, before the feast of the Passover, When Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. And Jesus immediately began lecturing his disciples, how dare you refuse to pick up the towel and wash your master's feet? Haven't you learned anything from me in the last three years? I've refused to allow my position of authority to get in the way of doing the lowest of jobs. When will you get the picture? How hard are your heads? Peter, pick up the towel and wash my feet. Is that what your text says? (laughs) I hope not. That would make sense though, wouldn't it? Isn't that what you're expecting Jesus to say? Guys, don't you get the picture? But instead of a sermon... Instead of a lecture, Jesus provides a picture that's stronger than any 10,000 word sermon. Verse four, let me read the actual text. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but, but afterward you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. You see what Jesus does. He takes off his coat. He puts on a towel, the attire of a servant, and he gets to work going around and washing his disciples' feet. I can only imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in the room because the disciples are definitely feeling a, a remarkable level of guilt. I mean, there's no way they wanted to wash each other's feet. And they should have been the ones washing Jesus' feet. But to have things reversed, to have Jesus being the one washing their feet, their rabbi, their teacher, their Messiah, it was unthinkable. I mean, look again at verse three, where John writes, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. I think of the power that was available to Jesus. I think of what he could have done. He could have brought the house down. He could have brought the hammer of God's wrath. He could have had like a Ananias and Sapphira moment with Judas and brought God's wrath down on the one who was about to betray him. But that's not what he does. Think of Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is the embodiment of that text. Jesus, the greatest, the most honorable person to ever walk the earth, more deserving of our praise than Michael Jordan, more deserving of our respect than the president of the United States, more deserving of our love than our very own parents. He did the dirty work and he washed his disciples' feet. <laughs> and then he gets to Peter. Oh, Peter. He's always the one who just seems to be speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, saying what none of the rest of them are brave enough to say. So after they go around the circle, they get to Peter. Jesus gets to Peter's and Peter says, uh-uh, you're not washing my feet. It's actually emphatic in the Greek. The you and the my are pitted against each other. He basically says, you wash my feet? I don't think so. Which is interesting for Peter. I mean, he's combining this humility with this pride all at the same time. The humility to say, Jesus, you're not doing this. You're my Messiah, you're not washing my feet. But then he has the pride to try to tell Jesus what to do. It doesn't work very well. But then what happens? Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any share with me. In other words, Peter, you're kicked out of the family if I don't wash you. So then it takes all of two seconds for Peter to change his mind. And he says, well, if that's the case, then give me a whole bath. And we can almost picture Peter starting to take off his clothes in the middle of the dinner table. And Jesus says, not, not so fast. Peter, you've already had a bath. You're already clean. All you need to do is wash your feet. Now, certainly Jesus is not being literal. He's not telling Peter, you can't be my disciple unless you take a shower every day. That's not what he's saying. He's being metaphorical. It's a spiritual analogy. He's saying, unless you're washed, unless you're clean, you can't be part of the family. Unless you believe, then you can't be part of the family. That's what it means to be cleansed, to be washed by the blood of the Savior. And think of the disciples. They believe. Think of Peter's statement earlier in the Gospels, his confession, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. Peter believed, even though all the pieces didn't quite click together yet. They believed in the Messiah who was to come. Jesus is being metaphorical. He's saying that in order to be cleansed, we have to believe in Christ. We have to be washed by his blood. And we've got to get the order right. We need a bath before we can wash our feet. And that's where we're gonna to start tonight. That's our first principle, begin with a bath. Begin with a bath. And it's a spiritual bath, isn't it? Being washed by the blood of Christ, having salvation, believing in Jesus. 
understanding what Jesus is saying begins with the bad news because all of us are sinful. And our morality, or God's standard of morality rather, is not relative, but it's absolute. And if you and I looked at our record of sin, our resume of sin throughout our entire life and thought and attitude and action, I don't think we'd want anybody else to ever see that list ever, but God knows. And we've earned by our sin eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. It's the worst possible news. No one is exempt from that punishment. But Jesus, he came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the great exchange, Jesus taking our sin and our filth and us getting Jesus' righteousness. Not by anything that we've done, but by faith. I think of Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Have you gotten a bath? We can't talk about all the foot washing stuff unless we've had a bath, unless you've believed in Jesus for your salvation. That's the most important decision that any of us can make. But once we've had a bath, once we have salvation, once we're adopted into Jesus' family, there's still gonna be moments when we've got to wash our feet. That's what Jesus said. The one who's bathed doesn't need to take a bath again. He just needs to wash his feet. Even for the individual who took a, a bath a couple hours earlier after spending two hours walking in the ancient Near Eastern heat, they're gonna to need to wash their feet. As followers of Christ, we've been forgiven. When we believe in Christ at the moment of our salvation, all of our sin, past, present, and future, it was paid for. It was forgiven at the cross. But when we look in the mirror at our own life, none of us are perfect. I hope that's not a surprise. We all still struggle with sin. Every one of us has stinky feet. But Christians are really good at pretending like we're perfect, pretending like everything's going great. We walk around with our shoes and our socks on, pretending like our feet don't stink. And then when we do take off our shoes and our socks, we make sure that nobody else is around so that no one can smell the stink emanating from between our toes. We're really good at pretending like we're perfect, like we have our act together. But we all have that besetting sin, or maybe it's besetting sins that trip us up. And maybe we've gone to the Lord a hundred times or a thousand times saying, forgive me for this. It feels like we ask over and over and over again. That's our stink. And I think we're far more inclined to show grace to one another in areas that might be similar to our own struggles than areas that are different. But what might that look like? What, is, what kind of stink are we talking about? Maybe it's a struggle with laziness. Maybe it's a struggle with sexual sin or alcohol or substances. Or maybe it's not a sin at all. Maybe it's what we would call a thorn. Maybe it's a struggle with same-sex attraction or anxiety. Maybe you just have a really negative work environment. Or maybe it's pain from your past and trauma relationships. And we struggle opening up about our pain. We struggle opening up about our stink because we never know what other people are gonna think. We're scared that we might be judged. We're scared that our friends might look at us differently. We hesitate to let people in. We hesitate to let people know what's actually going on in our life. But all of us have stinky feet. And as Christ followers, we have to admit we're not perfect. We have to admit that we need help. We have to admit that we need accountability and encouragement. 
and support. We have to have the courage to let one another into our lives, even into the parts that are less than desirable. And that's our second principle. Don't be afraid to say, my feet still stink. Here's my promise, that when you share your filth or your stinky feet with me, I promise that I'm not going to judge you. I promise that I'm not going to look at you differently or treat you differently. I promise to love you as a brother or sister in Christ. But here's the deal. I promise to help you wash your feet. That when we meet one another in the midst of our sin struggles, in the midst of our pain, I'm not just going to tolerate it. I'm not just going to live with it, but we're going to work together towards growth, loving one another, not just in the midst of our sin, but through our sin towards the cross. Really, this type of love towards one another is dirty work. It's hard work, but it's one of the best ways that we can show sacrificial love, sacrificial service, servant leadership toward one another, a great way that we can wash one another's feet. And when we look at John 13, our secular world has applied this text in a lot of different ways, in a lot of good ways. Maybe you've heard in recent years or decades about servant leadership. You can read all about it on the New York Times bestseller list, on Forbes, leadership conferences, and ultimately it comes from Jesus. Jesus was a servant leader. And is that bad? No, we want to be like Jesus. But what some in the secular world have done is they've just taken servant leadership as a concept, as really to try to get people to do what we want them to do, and kind of a backwards way to get to the top of the corporate ladder. Now, if we read this text, and the only question we ask is, okay, what does it look like for me to be a servant leader? We've missed the point because this text is not primarily about me. This text is about Jesus. And we have to read this text understanding Jesus in a new way, in a deep way. So let's think about Jesus for just a moment. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, how many disciples were around that table? It's not a trick question. Twelve. Who was included in that twelve? Hmm. Well, there was this man named Peter, isn't there? What was Peter going to do 12 hours later? Oh yeah, he was going to deny Jesus three times. And did Jesus know that was coming? Absolutely. But did Jesus watch Peter's feet? He did. Who else was around the table? Judas. Have you ever met anyone named Judas? Me neither. Because who's going to name someone after the person that betrayed Jesus? Nobody. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew that it was in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him for 30 pieces of silver and a kiss in the garden. But when Jesus goes around the circle, what does he do to Judas? He skips right over him, right? No, he washes his feet. That should blow our mind. That Jesus' service, his love, It's not conditional, it's unconditional. That Jesus' love for his disciples is not based on even their own obedience. It's not based even on their following him. Jesus loved each of them, sacrificed for each of them. That should blow our mind that Jesus even watched Judas' feet. Maybe that can be the backdrop as we read Jesus' explanation starting in verse 12. When he, Jesus, had washed their feet, 
and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you remember or do you understand what I've done to you? I'm not sure if that's a rhetorical question or if there was such a long, awkward silence that Jesus decided to answer. But either way, Jesus answers his own question and says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There was most certainly a power struggle in the midst of that room, in the midst of those 12 disciples. Remember James and John, the two brothers? They, I think they sent their mom. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but certainly their mom went to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can you make sure that my two boys have the, the highest place of honor, that they're at your right hand, that they're the most prominent? They wanted to be the most important. And then in the other gospels, they talk about an argument that takes place right around the same table where the disciples are arguing which among them is the greatest. And then there's Judas who's filled with jealousy who betrays Jesus to get money. There was this power struggle going on in the room. They all wanted to be the greatest. They all wanted to be the most important. They all wanted to be second in command to Jesus. And Jesus completely shatters the power struggle around the table by saying, do you wanna be great? You wanna be number two? then you better pick up the servant towel. And he shatters their expectations by washing their feet. Jesus teaches them through his actions that instead of climbing on top of each other to get to the top, his expectation is that they humble one another, that they sacrificially serve one another. We might look at this text and think, well, Jesus expects us to, to do the same to our community and to our neighbors. And I think we can get there in a couple steps. I think we might even get there in our small group tonight. But that's not the direct application from the text, is it? Jesus wants his disciples to wash each other's feet, wants them to serve each other. That is, we're looking for opportunities to serve and to love. The first place we're gonna look tonight is not outside the walls of the cafe room, but it's inside. It's around our own table. It's in our small group circle. How can we serve and love one another? Because the Christian life, it's not a competition. Our goal is to outdo one another in showing love through acts of service. (laughs) This is so hard. I want people to come to my house and rake my leaves. I want people to make me a meal when things aren't going very well or write an encouraging note. I want people to take time to listen to me when I'm having a hard time uh, processing something or watch Matthias so that him and I can go on a date night or giving us an unexpected gift. That's what I want. But when when there's an opportunity for me to serve somebody else, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I think... I worked a pretty long week. I need to rest this weekend. I can't help him move. Or, you know, I worked a couple hours of overtime. I'm, I'm skipping one-way club tonight. I, I just can't do it. Or, I know that they asked me to make a meal, but I just, I, I don't have time. I can't, I can't do it. And I like to serve on my own terms. I like to serve when it's convenient for me. But when someone asks me to do something, when I'm voluntold to do something, like, there's no way I'm not doing it. That's a Sam problem. That's a pride problem. A servant isn't greater than his master. And Jesus, our master, is not greater than 
or is greater than us, which is obvious, right? But if Jesus, the master, washed his disciples' feet, then how dare we think that we're better than Jesus than by refusing to do the same dirty work? Now, in secular culture, the farther you progress in the business world, in your, or in your occupation, right? Generally, the more money you make, the more uh, important, the less menial tasks you do, the larger office you receive, while the new hires, the interns to get to do all the work that you don't want to do. That's kind of the progression in the business world, isn't it? But what does Jesus say? To be great in the kingdom of God means being a servant. That the farther you progress in Jesus' kingdom, the more sacrifice and the more service we do. Greatness in Jesus' economy is paved on the path of sacrificial service. The longer we know Jesus, the more intimately we know him and serve him, the more willing we should be to pick up the servant's towel, not less. It's hard to fathom a time when we emulate Jesus in any greater way than when we serve one another. I wish I could say this was easy for me, but it's not. I feel like as I've been working on this, the Lord has <laughs> revealed some not quite good tendencies in my life. Let me tell you a story from last week. I do a, a book study with a couple pastors. We're going through a book by Paul David Tripp. And the chapter that we were on, on Tuesday morning, was about servanthood. But it was Monday. I didn't know that yet. I was procrastinating. I hadn't read the chapter yet. So Monday, a couple of us were talking, and I was complaining and whining about, this was a while ago, how I officiated a funeral and I didn't get compensated. And I was whining about it. And one of the guys in the study looked at me and said, Sam, you realize that we're talking about servanthood tomorrow? And that was like a dagger that went, Psh! I'm pretty sure I highlighted almost the entire chapter that night. It was the Holy Spirit convicting my heart that, Sam, you didn't sign up for this to get paid. Like, what are you doing? Stop being selfish. Be a servant. There's room for all of us to grow. So deep service says nothing is beneath me. That's our final point tonight. Deep service says nothing is beneath me. Both serving those in our, uh, in our small group, serving those in our church family, or serving those uh, even within our community. Because when we know Christ, he invades our life and our relationship with him leads to radical service. I think of a friend who donated a kidney to a, a special needs child that they knew. Amazing. I think of another friend who's on advertisement in the paper that somebody needed a kidney. Realized she was a match, donated a kidney to a complete stranger. That's mind-blowing. That's radical. I think of a friend that I had in college. We were out in downtown Indianapolis having a conversation with these three individuals who didn't have a home. And this woman started to share her story with my friend, and she just started crying. And my friend put her arms around her, gave her a huge hug as she's sobbing on his shoulder. I have no idea the last time that she'd had a bath. That's radical. Think of individuals that I know that in their retirement sold everything that they had and went over to the Middle East as missionaries. Radical things that the love of Christ causes us to do. Now, those are big. Tonight, I want us to start small. And they're going to start, those discussions are going to start in our small groups tonight. And if you've peeked at the questions, if you've looked ahead, you'll notice uh, a challenge, not a question, for number three. Here's my dream. That sometime this semester, all 14 of our small groups find a way to serve, maybe somebody in their small group, somebody in their church family, or somebody within their community. 
and I'm going to make it a little harder, make a difference today, does not count. But what I, tonight, I want you to have a discussion. You don't necessarily need to make a decision. I want to have a discussion. Bouncing some ideas off of each other, maybe giving a couple individuals some homework to do some research so that you can come back together next week with an idea or a couple ideas on what it would look like to do a service project with your small group before the end of the calendar year. Think of the difference, the impact that we could make for Christ with 14 small groups doing 14 service projects. What a great way to get to know your small group as we launch into new groups tonight. Because our world is so self-focused. And I think we can be too. I don't think we always want to admit how often, how much time we spend thinking about ourselves. Maybe there's a chance tonight that you feel trapped in a cycle of sin. Or maybe you feel like you just can't get out of your own head. One of the best things that you can do is find a way to serve. Get the focus off of yourself. Find a way to love like Jesus and serve others. One of the greatest ways for us to grow deep in our love for Jesus is to be like Jesus by serving one another. But what motivates Jesus' service? Think of Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs. <laughs> what motivates somebody to clean sewers in downtown San Francisco? Probably the paycheck. That's about the only reason I can think of. Now, did Jesus go to the cross <laughs> to get paid? No. There's no greater love than this, that someone will lay down his life for his friends. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. You and I have experienced love in the deepest imaginable way. And we have the opportunity to show that same sort of sacrificial love towards one another. Let's pray. Father, when we look at a picture of Christ like John 13, and then we look in the mirror at our own hearts, sometimes it's humbling to see the gap. And I know there's room in my heart, I know there's room in all of our hearts for growth in loving one another sacrificially and not viewing the Christian life as a competition, but serving each other by putting one another first, loving like Christ. So as we take some time to digest this passage in our small groups tonight, may you guide our discussion, may you guide our time, fill us with your spirit, and may this just be a, a fruitful opportunity uh, for us to grow uh, closer to you as we get to know our new small groups. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name, amen.